Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast from ABC News. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And we're coming to you from the Wells Fargo Center at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, where Hillary Clinton made history by becoming the first woman to win a major party presidential nomination. And we saw, of course, all the drama with Bernie Sanders. We've got a big show. We've got Joe Kennedy III, the latest generation of Kennedy, who had that primetime speech introducing Elizabeth Warren. Keeping we that had, Kennedy streak alive at conventions, too. Yes, absolutely. We've got, we have uh, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan, talking about Hillary Clinton's history-making moment. And we talked to Liz Kreutz, who has been our embedded reporter in Clinton land since God knows how long. I mean, even before she was running. Before she was even a candidate. And you know, we, we, we talked last week with our Trump reporter. It's an amazing thing that these, that these young journalists do out there. And it's so cool. What a cool experience. So before we start, though, remember, Powerhouse Politics, get us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, tune in, uh, get in there, subscribe, give us a rating. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate you listening. I'll send us some feedback on Twitter at hashtag Powerhouse Politics. Rick. I got to tell you, Donald Trump had promised a showbiz convention. There's been a hell of a lot of showbiz here in Philadelphia. Well, celebrities, for one. I mean, it, it, you, you stumble over them. Demi Lovato and Lady Gaga and a bunch of Broadway stars and, and Tony Goldwyn. Uh, and political celebrities, too. I mean, I, poor Tim Kaine. You know, he goes out there in his, in his big night, and he's, he's uh, sandwiched between the sitting vice president and the sitting president of the United States. Uh, and there, there are so, was, to me, it was just a flexing of muscle. You, you saw this array of surrogates who were able to go out there and make an effective case in their own voices for this uh, new Clinton-Kane ticket. And I think, I think that's what we're going to see over the next couple of months. You, you have people out there who can do it in their unique ways in different pockets of the country. Um, and, and, John, when you think about how this convention started and the, 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 the chaos that things seem to be careening into early on with all the Bernie chants and uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz getting fired at the beginning of this. God, that seems like a long time ago, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> sure it does. Uh, remember, the, remember the plagiarism scandal talking about a long time ago? It, the, the Democrats have to feel pretty good about where things stand in this convention, given how it began. Well, you know, looking at Obama's speech where he explicitly invoked Ronald Reagan, City on the Hill, presented not just an optimistic uh, portrayal of where the United States is, but spoke in terms that you usually hear Republicans speaking in about American exceptionalism, about American greatness. And if you listen to some of the reaction from Republicans, especially those that are quite uneasy about Donald Trump. They're like, wait a minute, they stole our message. They stole morning in America. You're they, right. I mean, this is this is uh, interesting. And Obama was explicit about it. He said the Republican Party is not, the Republican Party that we grew up with is not the Republican Party that we see now under, under Donald Trump. And I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if you, you saw this, but uh, Jeb Bush's uh, communications director, Tim Miller, his reaction was, okay, Trump apologists, tell me, why would any 18-year-old watching those conventions choose to become a Republican? It was perfectly set up for Obama to set that message. And you can imagine the speechwriters watching Donald Trump last week with a little bit of glee because of the material that it gave them. It was a dark, it was a gloomy speech. Uh, you know, as we've discussed, though, John, a lot of the country doesn't like where things stand right now. Yes, yeah, 70% of the country says we're going in the wrong track. How do you say it's morning in America? So the, the flip side is, you know, on the floor of the convention, uh, there were a bunch of Hollywood celebrities that sang, all we need is love. And uh, you know what? 
I don't know that ISIS is going to get killed by love is the response to that. And if you're out there without a job, you don't want love. You want a job. So whether that you know, very sunny uh, attitude of things are working in the right direction uh, resonates or, or not, given the fact that the country is uneasy and you have such angst and anxiety out there economic and security-wise, the Democrats have been in charge. They own it. And the response from Trump land, third term, own the third term, whether that's the Clinton third term or the Obama third term, somebody's third term. The Democrats have been in charge for a while, and it's really hard to follow up two in a row with a third. And in fact, there was a moment during Obama's speech where somebody yelled out, four more years. I mean, I wow. mean that. I mean that is uh, the one thing that they agree on is that uh, is that they you know this is effectively a campaign to stay the course or not. That's right, and, and, and it's that's it's the hard choice. to imagine. We love to say about consequential elections, it's hard to imagine a starker choice than that laid out by Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. I, I think though, Hillary Clinton has no choice but to do it, and choosing Tim Kaine just doubles down on that aspect. I mean, this, these are two insiders. What are you going to what are you going to pretend that they are? some kind of outsiders, the way that Bill Clinton earlier in the week framed it as an ultimate change maker. Uh, yeah, how do you do that? How do you, how do you make the case that this is all about experience, that this is about uh, continuing the work of the Obama presidency, and say that uh, elect Hillary Clinton, she's a great change maker? I think the way that they're trying to thread the needle is to say... Change takes time. Also, they're not content with what they see. And there's a, a telling little thing I'd heard about Tim Kaine um, that, I, that I was told contributed to the decision for Hillary to choose him, that he had, said at one, he had said at one point that he never goes to bed any night of his life. He's never gone to bed without thinking about what he didn't accomplish that day, some degree of frustration, and that Hillary Clinton personally feels the same way about her life. And that just was a small detail that kind of sounds like boilerplate but struck a nerve, and I think actually that's the piece of it, that if, if they can project, yeah, we're the, we're the insiders, but we're not going to be satisfied with what we've done so far. We're going to be working every day. That might be the winning message. I, I spoke a little bit with Tim Kaine before he went on, on Good Morning America, and he said that he talked to Obama before he went out uh, to give his speech. And again, that was you know sandwiched between Biden and Obama, and not just sandwiched between Biden and Obama, but that may have been the best Biden speech I've, oh, I've wow. seen. Was I mean, that was that yeah. was really, uh, and and I think that, that Obama had one of his, I mean, that was one of the best political speeches we've ever seen from him. But he said that, uh, that Obama, who he's known for a long time, uh, said, I was putting my thumb on the scales for you. They were asking, you know, she was asking for my advice and I was I was pushing you. What's he going to say? I was uh, I was saying he it's a Perez or <laughs> Phil Sack. No. <laughs> but he was. And you uh, know he was. I mean, uh, you know, it's striking. Well, he almost that, chose him eight years ago. Yeah. He came down, it really came down to two. Yeah, I mean, it came right. down to Biden or Kane. Yeah, that's right. And and I think uh, you look at the guy's resume and it is it is uh, it's almost made up with, with all of the details on it. How, did he, how does he live long enough to do it? Uh, and I think, you know, He another, was running for city council Council in Richmond when, uh, you know, pre- uh, President Bill Clinton was uh, was talking about midnight basketball. And, I mean, and what was Barack Obama doing around that time? <laughs> Editing the law review? Or this, is, this is how politics works these days. I, I think, though, the, the, there, there are two elements of, uh, of a Tim, Kim, Tim Kaine speech that I think are going to be, that may be underrated and you should listen for, uh, scripture and Spanish. Listen for the Bible. You, you're saying he speaks Spanish? No, I'm not, so can't I, confirm I, this. I hadn't, I I hadn't picked up this. on that. Does he... 
Does he ever? Does he ever sprinkled in his? Uh, sp- no? Spanglish when you're done with it. I think that though, if it's possible to to not focus on that enough, I don't know that you can focus on enough what that Spanish means. That means that that every Spanish language broadcast in the country is going to be using. But does he overdo it a little bit in the speeches? Eh, Come on, sure. But I to me, it's he's so folksy and like Ned Flandersy that you know it doesn't. It doesn't come across as, as heavy-handed, to me at least. I, I get a little worried I when I can understand what he's saying in Spanish. <laughs> it's a really you know? Sign. I mean. Si se puede, John. Si se puede. All right. All right. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a very interesting interview with Joe Kennedy III. I've got to tell you, Rick, this, this guy has some of that Kennedy touch that, that, that we haven't seen for a long time. And, I, and he is, he is a, already a real star in the state of Massachusetts. He was a student in Elizabeth Warren's class at Harvard Law School and it you know was and she was uh, she tapped him to do that introduction. But very interesting discussion uh, with Joe Kennedy. We'll be back in a minute. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu for long-lasting relief you can wear. Available at Walgreens and CVS. Hey, it's Rick again. If you like our podcast and want to check out some others from ABC News, check out abcnewspodcast.com. A little something for everyone over there. So take a look, tell your friends, review us, rate us online. And, of course, if you have comments for us, hashtag Powerhouse Politics. Happy listening to you. Okay, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. I sat down with Joe Kennedy III, congressman from Massachusetts, who had a primetime speaking role uh, introducing Elizabeth Warren. Talked about what that experience was like, which is quite an interesting experience, by the way, Rick, backstage, a little interaction he had. Remember, he actually spoke right after Michelle Obama, which is not exactly the easiest (laughs) position. (laughs) I mean, my Lord. Uh, But then uh, he had some very tough words for Donald Trump. Here it is. I gotta tell you, this was your this was your this is your first big convention speech, right? I mean, it was, prime yeah. time. I mean, certainly first big one. I had the honor to uh, introduce a little video about my uncle, Senator Kennedy, last time, but um, this was certainly uh, a much bigger speech and a, a much bigger opportunity. And to be able to talk about um, in a personal way, somebody who I have great personal affection for, and and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, All right, but let's, was a real let's honor. set the stage here for a second, okay? <laughs> I mean, here you are. This, it's prime time. I mean, this is the hour. This is the yeah. hour, and. Remind me, who spoke right before you? The First Lady. <laughs> that would be Michelle Obama, right? That, yes. Okay, so this was a speech that people like me were, were saying was you know, arguably one of the great convention speeches of all time. And I would say the same. Um, so I wasn't all that nervous until about halfway through her speech where you realize just how well she's doing and just how high the bar is now set. At You're which point I started freaking out. The great speech, not yeah, after. I, I, I didn't get a chance to, to work the speaking program. <laughs> uh, so I'm, they, they rushed me, you know, the, how these work. You understandably want to make sure all the speakers are in line. So they put you in hold rooms for a couple hours beforehand. Yeah. So it's me and my wife who's with me and a couple of uh, members of our team that are sitting there and waiting for a couple of hours. And then all of a sudden I get rushed out. Uh, I presume because the first lady was just arriving, they needed to secure the, the, the perimeter for it. And then I'm sitting backstage, and it's this narrow little aisleway and a bunch of uh, staffers and Secret Service members that are sitting there and a little camera where I can watch uh, the actual proceedings. And Senator Booker is just finishing up this 
just stem-winder of a speech and, and done this incredible job. And two Secret Service agents are, are whispering to each other, and one guy turns over to his buddy and says, I'm sure glad I don't have to go after that guy. And I look up at him like, yeah, thanks. And um, so somewhat terrified at this point of following up Senator Booker, and I look over and I see the First Lady, and I say, oh, well, thank God I've got a little bit of space between Senator Booker and myself. Yeah. At which point she walks on, and about, again, halfway, six, seven minutes through, she's giving one of the great addresses I've certainly heard in a very, very yeah. long time. At which point I had a mini freakout backstage. But uh, look, it all worked out. It, I, you go from wishing you had five minutes or, or longer to actually kind of tell the full story I wanted to tell about um, Senator Warren to being grateful that she only had two and could get in and get out. <laughs> so so you, uh, you were asked to introduce uh, Senator Warren. Yeah. When, when did that happen? When, when, did you, when were you asked to do this so speech? So Senator Warren actually called... Um, uh, you know, a week or so, probably now 10 days ago or so, um, and asked if I would do the introduction. And uh, you know, my wife and I actually met in her class. Uh, she was my, uh, as I told the story, our uh, contract professor the first day of law school. Um, she was an amazing teacher, uh, dedicated herself to her students. Um, she taught two classes at, at, uh, at Harvard, uh, contracts and, and, and then bankruptcy. And I took bankruptcy law just because she was the teacher. Um, she won the Best Teacher Award there uh, a number of times and just is a um, somebody that, despite all that she had going on, I remember going to her office hours one time and she was hanging up on Harry Reid as they were going uh, through the oversight of TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, so that she could answer questions that I had about the intricacies of bankruptcy <laughs> law, which I thought was a, a, a pretty cool thing and a pretty amazing testament to her. And she gave you a hard time as you related uh, when you first started her class. And uh, she did, and... What happened in real life was actually far worse than I relate on that stage. I, I had enough decency to not relive total public humiliation to the degree to which it happened there in front of 15 million people on national television. So I took a little bit of mercy on myself, thankfully. Um, but she did it uh, to prove a point, and she always, she always did in that class. She was really hard on our students, but she believed in you, and she believed that if she pushed you, you would answer it. And it was amazing to watch when you took her classes, people took a lighter course load because... You had to devote yourself to that course so much. There were groups of us that came together in study groups beforehand, six or seven students for an hour, hour and a half before the class started, to go through those cases line by line to make sure you were as prepared as you could be, and you still got the questions wrong. Okay, yeah. we, we probably don't have 50 million people listening right now, but, 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 give, but give us a quick dose of what you did, because I, I heard there was more to the story. We, 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 we heard from Senator Warren that there was a little bit more to the story. There's a little bit more to the story. So we walk in, uh, look, it's the, the, the full story from my perspective. Day before law school starts, and um, I'm having dinner with my dad, and he, I'm very close with him, and we finish up dinner, we walk into the living room, and he hasn't said much about it, and he finally says, listen, I just want to say, you're, you're about to start law school, and I'm really proud of you. I got one piece of advice for you. I said, great, what's that? And he said, everybody's going to think you're smart. Don't open your mouth and disappoint them, right? <laughs> so it was under that yeah, nice. advice that I kind of go to law school, and I, I, I get there, and I... I take a, a seat in the back row, the second to last seat. I put my head down and try to ignore it. And all the students start to filter in, and they're huddled around this little thing that's a seating chart. And I, I end up being in the front row on the right-hand side in the middle of the panel. And they give you a big name tag, which so says Kennedy in big bold letters. So I kind of get there, and I, I try to put my head down and just really get through the class without getting called on. And right on time, this professor bounces down the stadium, seating, stadium stairs, puts her books down with a thud in the middle of the room on the table, turns around and says, all right, let's get started. Mr. Kennedy, what's the definition of assumption? No hi, no good morning, no welcome to law school, no nothing, just boom. And <laughs> the preceding 30 seconds until felt like an eternity were her, me not being prepared for class and her showing that you should never show up for her class unprepared. 
um, luckily for me, there was a, uh, a cute girl in the second to last row who I still convinced to marry me after that. And as <laughs> about two months into dating, um, we were in a study group and we ran into something else, another word that I didn't know. And she said, you better look that up. You're going to get called on again. And we're in class, sure enough, and I'm furiously writing notes down. And I realize the entire class has stopped. And I look up and everybody, including Senator Warren, is staring at me because she's gone around to about three people and they don't know the definition of the word. And she calls on me and says, you want another shot? And luckily, my now wife had told me to write the damn definition down. So I did. I got it. I got a standing ovation. Um, you may not have survived the second experience. I would not know. And, not knowing the answer. To, to show you how much, unfortunately, this had an impact on my colleagues, my classmates, and unfortunately, as well, our now senior senator. When you graduate, um, you walk across stage and you get your diploma from one of your first-year professors, and it was her. And I walked across stage, and as she was handing me the diploma, she asked me again. <laughs> like, you're not going to get it until you know it. So um, means breach of contract, and I've never forgotten it. Um, interestingly, funnily enough, I seem got a kick out of it. Merriam-Webster tweeted out the, the, the lookups for a sumpsit on uh, their online dictionary had gone up 92,000% since, uh, since Monday night. So I'm glad to know I'm not the only person that didn't know what the heck the word meant. So let's talk about this convention. Uh, one thing I, I have noticed is there are two possibly competing themes here. You have uh, talk about Hillary Clinton being the most qualified person, perhaps one of the most qualified uh, to, to run for president. I think if you combine actually the Tim Kaine uh, uh, running mate choice, you know, all his experience, mayor, lieutenant governor, governor, senator, party chairman, it's probably the most qualified ticket that's been a that's been a, that's been part of the theme here. Absolutely. And yet, Bill Clinton in his speech talked about Hillary Clinton as a change agent. Now, a lot of people look at an experienced ticket and they might say, "Yeah, career politicians." Right. So, how do you make the argument to a country that believes that we are going in the wrong direction mm -hmm. when you have this ticket that is that that, that, that reeks political experience? Because I think, uh, John, what we've seen, particularly given the challenges that this country faces. We didn't get into them overnight. You're not going to get out of them overnight. What we've seen from an Obama administration is a slow and steady progress uh, out of a extraordinarily deep hole that the Bush administration put us in with regards to response to 9-11, two wars, a tax cut, prescription drug program that wasn't paid for, uh, and a recession that followed. And we've now got nearly 70 months of, of, uh, of job growth. We've got our recessions are coming down. We've, we've made extraordinary progress on our Obama administration, saved the uh, housing market has come back. We saved the auto market. Uh, and this administration deserves a lot of credit for it. I think you'll hear a lot about that tonight. But the fact is, is that there are structural changes that we need to adjust to. And given the challenges that I see, both, and that I've now been in Washington for the past nearly four years, the challenges we face domestically, the challenges we face around the world, you, you can't get out of that by just saying, we're going to make America great again, and not saying how you're going to do that or why, or, or what, what you're going to do and actually to make good on that idea. So, that experience, we saw the struggles of a Trump administration, even to pull off a convention successfully. You now take a look at one challenge we're seeing in the world today. We've got a staunch NATO ally in Turkey, that uh, uh, prime minister that has overreached and uh, now trying to put down a coup, fired 60,000 civil servants, taken control of the media, taken control of the judiciary. They shot down a Russian fighter jet a couple months ago. A, in real time, example of how the United States is going to be tested on our long-term vision of 
democracy and representative democracy and the challenges of stability and reliance on international alliances and our NATO allies, how we balance both and the challenges and nuance that are associated with that. Donald Trump can't run a convention. You expect him to be able to navigate through those challenges? For a guy that, according to press reports, had offered to delegate full foreign policy portfolio and domestic policy portfolio to his potential vice president and, and governor of Ohio and Mr. Kasich in order to attract him to the ticket? There's just no comparison here. And you can't, this is not reality TV anymore. This is real, and it's got real consequences. Is Hillary Clinton, though, effectively running to continue? You just mentioned what, what yeah. President Obama's done over the last four. Is this basically a, you know, stay the course, continue what President Obama has started? I think what we've seen out of uh, an Obama presidency is a dramatic bettering of our economy and a, a reorientation of our foreign policy. I think you'll see Secretary Clinton and a president, new President Clinton administration build on some of those successes that we've seen, but also take a different tack. Particularly we've seen uh, in some of our policies and what she's put forth uh, with regards to foreign policy and, and rebuilding. What are the big differences? What, well, I what, think, what, one, you've seen the world's also changed. So, one, we as a, a country now are going to have to respond to uh, one of our stalwart allies in Europe and Britain that has voted to exit the EU. And though the foreign policy... Well, the, the relationship between the United States and Britain is going to remain steadfast. What that means for Europe, what that means between uh, for Britain's economy, what that means for the ties between Britain and Europe and the United States is going to be tested. Now, I hope and or I expect and trust the Secretary Clinton and uh, Tim Kaine, their administration, to do a far better job at navigating those challenges, keeping Britain close, keeping the EU intact as a major U.S. Uh, ally, and really building on what was also a Republican president's idea of George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, as Britain, uh, excuse me, as Europe, free, whole, and at peace. And Donald Trump talked about today inciting or advocating for Russia to hack into U.S. organizations to release emails. Do you, so, some, some Democrats are calling that basically treason. I mean, what, what do you... I think it's outrageous. I think it's... Um, it comes up to that point. Whether or not it passes the definition of treason, I don't know. But the idea that the leader of the free world and the, the chief executive of the United States would in any way indicate that it was somewhat okay for a foreign power to engage in espionage on a U.S. agency, regardless of what it is, nonprofit, political or otherwise, is outrageous one. If Russia did do this, which the analysis, at least so far from public press reports, has indicated that some high degree of confidence that Russia was, in fact, responsible for this. That is a foreign government meddling in our electoral process. And that deserves a strong and concerted response from the United States government. In fact, I think you even heard uh, his vice presidential pick, uh, Governor Pence, today push back pretty hard and say, regardless of party, there would be a response. That's not what his nominee, or his nominee actually said. So you've got a presidential Republican nominee in Trump at odds with the vice presidential pick, who actually served on the Foreign Affairs Committee, has experience in Washington, and recognizes how ludicrous his party's nominee, his claim actually is. All right, a lot more to talk on that. We're, we're pretty much out of time. I want to get your predictions on the race. Yeah. How, how do you see this? Uh, we've seen, I mean, you, you, you look at Nate Silver, 538, and, and he, in his now cast, he had it. Right now, the election we're held today, Trump would win, 53%. Look, where I, do you think it is right now? Where do you think this race is? So, You've been involved in, in politics and following these races, obviously, far longer even than I have. But I would say campaigns, particularly for the presidency, they've got a rhythm to them. We are now 
two days in, two and a half into the Democratic uh, convention. I expect a, you look at the, the highlights for the speakers tonight between Tim Caden, um, Senator Kane, Vice President Biden, President Obama, um, building off, I think, a remarkable week already between President Clinton's remarks yesterday and um, a really powerful set of remarks on Monday, but, uh, highlighted by the First Lady. Democrats are coming out of this convention already far more unified than we did coming in. And I think the American public is going to see, and has already seen, a stark contrast in values and vision and implementation of what we believe, or Democrats believe, the United States stands for and what the, the, the priorities for this next administration should be versus that of our Republican colleagues. And I think after you have that framework set, we'll go out there and campaign on it for the next several months. And I think after people, in, American people, engage in this and actually really start to scrub who these candidates are, the policies they stand for, their judgment, their temperament, I think Secretary Clinton's going to win. Is it going to be close? Uh, I think presidential elections are always close. Um, I think she's got a chance to, to put some distance on it. All right. Let's hope. Congressman Joe Kennedy, thanks for joining us on the Pleasure. Powerhouse Politics <laughs> Podcast. We'll <laughs> talk to you time. again soon. Take, thanks so Take much. Care. Earlier this week, right here in Philadelphia, we caught up with the former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm. She went on a rant about Donald Trump at a delegate breakfast earlier in the week, and she was a big star at the convention four years ago, fired up and ready to go. She's also been talked about as a possible replacement for Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is leaving as the chair of the Democratic National Committee. So I had to ask her about that. And here it is, my interview with Jennifer Granholm. You've had a big role at some conventions past. How does this rank with some others that you've been to in the, in the last uh, couple of cycles? Well, obviously, the barrier that was broken in the last cycle was hugely emotional. Uh, I was initially a Hillary Clinton supporter last time and was thrilled to support Barack Obama, too. This one is another barrier-breaking one, and it is, um, you know, for me personally, it's totally profound. It's really very deep for women of my generation and, and lots of women, obviously. So um, it's hard to compare because they're totally different. But I think there's a real sense here of um, a woman who has worked really hard to get where she is, to have the qualification, to, and, and here one of us has finally made it. So it's very emotional. So when you saw the moment uh, toward the end of the night with all of the pictures of the male presidents and then the shattered glass and Hillary Clinton, what went through your oh. mind? Gosh, I, along with everyone else, screamed at the top of my lungs. It was so, um, it was just perfect. It was a perfect symbol. And then when, when they panned back and saw the kids next to her, that the realization that it's not about her, but it's about all of us, it's about the next generation, that was just very, uh, very well done in terms of the DNC. What does it mean for the next generation? I, I imagine women watching that, girls watching that, have a different reaction than men might watch it, and, and, and another generation coming up. Do you think it inspires more office seekers? Well, that's the hope, right, is that you cannot be what you cannot see. And so children, little girls, it should be boring that there is a woman in a leadership role. And it's not just little girls. For little boys, it should be boring that there's a woman in a leadership role. Both, both genders need to have the lesson that it shouldn't matter what your plumbing is in order for you to take a position of leadership. Let's talk a little electoral map. We know that Donald Trump is uh, hoping to put Michigan on the board, your home state. What's the chance you think that, that Michigan flips back red at the presidential level this year? I think it's a tough, uh, it would be tough for him to, to get that to happen. However, um, I do think it's going to be close. When he talks about the issues related to jobs and trade, those are really important for our state. 
Uh, of course, I think they hear they hear those issues, and they, there's something in there that they like. Of course, it's an emotional, it's a deep issue, and so you'll hear her talk about those issues too. And the difference is that he's talked about TPP and all of that, but he hasn't said what he would replace it with. He hasn't said how specifically, how will you create jobs in America in a global economy? What are your plans to do that? She, on the other hand, has a really aggressive advanced manufacturing plan. She wants to make the biggest investment in job creation since World War II in this country. That people need to hear. She's got plans to do it. He's got rhetoric, and rhetoric doesn't get you anywhere. So when you hear Donald Trump going out there and talking about trade, what's the kind of message that you need to hear from a Democrat to push back against this? You say, even if it's rhetoric, if it's words that people relate to. Well, I do think that Democrats need to understand, and I admit most of them do, especially in the industrial Midwest, that this is really an existential question for so many people, that they have felt and seen and had family members who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own, purely to globalization. And the question for all of us is, how do you create jobs in America, advanced manufacturing jobs? Do we just cede the territory and not make anything? She is, you know, she was the co-founder of the Manufacturing Caucus in the Senate. She is really adamant that we can compete. Maybe not all of the low-skilled jobs we will keep, but we can certainly keep the advanced manufacturing jobs and create industrial clusters so that there's really pockets of huge ability to make stuff stamp made in America and then export it. But he doesn't, I mean, that's the kicker is I, I know that people are emotionally drawn to the arguments related to job losses. I know it, and I feel it deeply, personally. And I'm really glad that she's been very strong about TPP and about trade. She's not going to, you know, in fact, when he keeps raising it, it gives her the chance to say over and over again, we're not going to pass TPP. We're not afraid of trade, but we are are not going to sign on to any more trade agreements that basically aid and abet the loss of American jobs. We are going to be tough about it. And she's going to appoint a trade prosecutor at the World Trade Organization to make sure these agreements are enforced and renegotiate NAFTA, making sure that it is tough for us and not giving away the store. Finally, Governor, are you going to be the next chair of the Democratic National Committee? Heard your name around a lot the last couple of days. Um, I, I do not know where that came from. I have not put my name in. I have not talked to anybody about it. I, I totally endorse Donna Brazil. Well, she's only going to do it for a couple months, though. She's made clear. She, she should do it longer than that. <laughs> All right. We're big fans of Donna here. To the ABC News contributor, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Well, Rick, that's interesting. You've got an endorsement of Donna Brazil uh, for the to be permanent DNC chairman in perpetuity. Yeah, I don't think she wants it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think Jennifer Renholm does. Uh, so maybe she needs to be nice to the, the current chair. Uh, but it's going to be a fierce lobbying campaign to, to, to do it next. It'll depend, of course, on who wins the election in part uh, on where it is. But, uh, you know, just a wild week when you think about how this started for Debbie Wasserman Schultz and ended for Debbie Wasserman Schultz and, and a, a casualty of a leak uh, that involves the, potentially the Russians. Uh, and, and, of course, and fears the, of more leaks. That's right. There's more, there's more out there just kind of roiling uh, politics right now. So we've got something very special coming up right now. Uh, we, you know, ABC News and the other networks do this as well. The beginning, the very beginning of the presidential campaign, really before the announcements are made, we look at the, who, are the, who the likely candidates are and we assign young yeah. uh, producers, digital reporters to become the embedded reporters in these campaigns. It's a really cool gig. They it's really kind of work with you. I mean, you're the political yeah, director. These no, are your people. The, these, are, these, are, these are my troops. They're out there every day sweating it, and, you know, they're, they're getting three hours of sleep in bad hotel rooms, and they're, you know, in press scrums, and they're out there to capture every moment, and it's an amazing thing 
that they do, the amount of work that they do, the stuff you don't see. Uh, so that's it, it, it's fun to talk to them now at this kind of moment of rest at the conventions. They got to sleep at the same hotel for a couple of nights in a row. That's kind of cool for them. And, and their job is to know everything about that candidate, to be at virtually every event that candidate is doing, to know everything about the history, the, the, the present tense, where they're headed. So Liz Kreutz is our person with Hillary Clinton, and she has been there from the very beginning, and she's a true ABC star. All right, Liz, so... Come on, tell us, how many Hillary Clinton events have you been to? How long have you been on this beat to get to this moment, this convention? I don't think there's any way to count how many events I've been to. It's in the hundreds for sure. Uh, I've been covering her since before she even announced, beginning back when she was giving those paid speeches during her book tour, Hard Choices. But I've been like full time on the road with her since she announced last April. So it's been about a year and a half, long time. And, and what was your sense? You saw this convention. She's up there with Tim Kaine. Yes. Chemistry? I mean, did, 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 does... does she, she thinks so, for sure. I mean, that's the reason she picked him, at least one of the reasons. She liked their chemistry when they campaigned together the week before she announced. Uh, she thinks they have a good rapport, and, and she likes his personality and down-to-earth campaign style. I think also there's a sense that maybe she's not going to... He's not going to outshine her there was some feeling that maybe Elizabeth Warren could do that. So he's sort of self-described. He calls himself boring, and I think she likes that about him. How has she changed as a candidate? You saw her at the very beginning, before she's even a candidate. She's never been the most natural of politicians. Has she gotten better, worse? What's your sense? I think so, actually. I think Which one, better or worse? Better, better. <laughs> yeah, I think so. That was the yes, answer was yes. I, yeah, so either one. I don't know. No, better. Um, in many ways, even though she doesn't really talk to the press still that much. You know, when was the last time pre- you had a press conference like again? 240-something days. That's not the, Don't quote me on the exact number, but the last time she had a formal press conference was December 4th. Isn't that a little insane? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so like, when we get any moment with her, it's like, oh my gosh, should we talk to Hillary Clinton? Because she doesn't ever come over and talk to us. So we, we like thrive on the these little started. moments. December. That's yeah. before anyone cast a vote. And by right. the way, Tim Kaine's like one of the most accessible guys that, I mean, covering the Senate, I mean, you could, you could talk to him. I mean, very, very accessible. Is that going to change now? So I haven't been around Tim Kaine that much yet, but from my, my colleagues who have already started being around him, they're saying that there's a huge sort of Clintonian uh, swarm of, of people, people around him, preventing him from talking to anybody now. They try and get on the rope line, and it's basically just like covering Clinton at this point, it sounds oh like. Oh, my God. Yeah, once, now he's in the Clinton orbit. So that aside, I mean, what's, what is an, a Clinton event uh, like now versus what it was like a year and a half ago when this all began? Well, obviously when it all began, she was doing these, remember this, it was Remember the like ramp up phase, and she was doing these tiny little the Scooby Van. The Scooby Van. We still see the Scooby Van every once in a while. Um, it comes do they know what happened in the Scooby Van? Like, did they ever have they ever explored? No, the, uh. a great. We should try and get in the Scooby Van. That would be a great story. <laughs> I know like, what happens in there. I think her and Huma like look at like People Magazine together sometimes. <laughs> I really do think so. But. Um, but, uh, you know, back in April a year ago when she first launched, she had these like, policy roundtables that she talked about gun control or she talked about drug addiction and issues she cared about. And then she slowly expanded and had bigger and bigger rallies. But now, like, the biggest rally she's had has been about 7,000 people, which is really nothing when you look at Trump or Bernie Sanders. But, uh, but she's still, you know, for her, she's having big 5,000, 6,000 people rallies now. And is she a better retail politician, kind of one-on-one? Has that changed at all or is it still... 
I mean, she's not. She never seemed to me. She's not like her husband. I mean, there's there, there's there's something that's just not the same about her interactions with people. Totally, it's nothing like her husband. I mean, even now, I've had a lot of interactions with Bill Clinton. I think I've had, had more FaceTime one-on-one with Bill Clinton than I had with have had with Hillary Clinton. And he just can talk to you more naturally. He's more comfortable doing it. She's very guarded. I think she feels like she's been burned. But that said, she's gotten really good at the selfies. So that's sort of like her fallback. <laughs> that this, is. This, this is this, this is the selfie campaign. I mean, these politicians are getting bombarded with it. Used to be autographs, right. no more. But Obama says no selfies, right? I think that's his rule. I've heard. But she is all about. Well, that. ever since David Ortiz came and made some cash Money at the White House, I mean, it's been. <laughs> but Obama still does the uh, still does the occasional selfies uh, selfie. Um, all right, we know you have to go, but before you do, you mentioned you've had more interaction with Bill Clinton mm-hmm. than with Hillary Clinton. Okay, you got to give us a little something. What, what's what's give, give us give us a, a little sense of what that's like? What's what's your rapport with with, with Elvis? With Bill. Bill Clinton. Bill. He just likes to talk. I mean, I was telling Rick this. He loves Shinola watches, and I happened to run into a Shinola store in Detroit when I, a few months Shinola back. Shinola watches. Shinola watches. Wow. It's his thing. Watch him. Bill Clinton wears them. Obama wears them. Uh, yeah, all the wow. rage. He has them for all the Secret Service agents. Anyways, I ran into him. As in, ran in. I happened to be in the store when Bill Clinton's motorcade was outside, and he was in there shopping for watches, buying one for Hillary Clinton, actually. And I just started talking to him, me and some of the other reporters, and he, you know, as he was talking to us, he grabbed someone's baby and was, like, holding this random woman's baby and then <laughs> telling us about um, this bracelet that he wears that he's worn since the early 90s or 2000s. So he's just, you know, able to just sort of make conversation with people, I think, in a way that she is a little more reserved and held back. Wow. All right. Liz Kreutz, our reporter embedded in Clinton land. You've got a ways to go. Yes, it's Not just the beginning, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot, Liz. All right, that'll do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics coming to you from Philadelphia. Please take a moment and rate our show on iTunes. Write a review. Tell us what you think. If you like our podcast, tell your friends about it. If you don't, just mind your own damn business. Thanks a lot for watching. Remember, you can see the listen to the other podcasts from ABC News, including that one Dan Harris does. ABCNewsPodcast.com. We'll be back next week. Talk to you then. For Rick Klein and all of us here at ABC News, I'm Jonathan Carl. <laughs>